In a world where we experience economic turmoil, grief, poverty, and crime, we are not consumed by the flames, but rather we use those flames to light our path toward a brighter future. Through our faith, we learn to receive the strength and resilience we need to survive and thrive in the midst of life's greatest challenges. So let us be like the fire that burns hot and bright, never letting the world's darkness extinguish our inner flame. Let us draw upon the unshakable resilience that comes from Jesus alone and emerge from the trials of life stronger and more resilient than ever before. So my grandpa, my dad's dad, was notorious for one-liners. It seemed like he had a catchphrase for every one of life's circumstances. I remember growing up and going to see grandma and grandpa who didn't live far. And on one particular visit, I remember he asked me, Brian, can you go get or can you go find whatever it was? And I did my due diligence. I did my best to find it. And I remember coming up short and having to come back to grandpa and say, grandpa, I, I just can't find it. And in the most kind way, he pointed right next to me and said, it's right there. And I remember just, I'm so sorry, Grandpa, I couldn't find it. And that's when he laid one on me and said, Brian, if that had been a rattlesnake, it would have bit you. Okay, you know the phrase. The phrase is founded in this idea that something that is in plain sight, that's right there in front of us, we miss. This happens when you reread a book or rewatch a movie. Because as you're reading the book or watching the movie, you know the characters and you know the plot and the setting and the storyline and likely the conclusion. And so it's possible as you're rereading or rewatching, because you know the story, you might miss the tiny nuances or the hidden meanings in the story or the book. I say this because that's my fear, my potential fear for us today. It's very likely you know this story, its characters, and the setting, and the outcome, but I don't want you to miss the point. I don't want you to miss what's right in front of you. I don't want you to miss what's hidden in plain sight. Ooh, in plain sight. That sounds like a good epic movie thriller, doesn't it? Like, in a world where the pastor turns the introduction into a movie trailer. A story that we know, or that we think we know, we know parts of the parts we know, that involves a king and a man and a dream. What is hiding in plain sight? Coming to Cornwall Church right now. If that sounds like an exciting storyline and plot, good news for you. We're going to walk through that story today. In fact, if you have your Bible, your good old B-I-B-L-E, it's going to get some use today. So turn to Daniel chapter 2. If you have the Bible app, open that. And if you're attending online inside the church online platform, you can actually click on the Bible tab and you too can follow along. If you don't want to do any of that, that's okay. I'm going to read a good portion of Daniel 2. So sit back, relax. Don't fall asleep and hang tight as we walk through Daniel 2. It begins like this. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. 
So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in, he told them, I have had a dream that troubles me. I want to know what it means. The astrologers answered the king, O king, tell us the dream and we will interpret it. The king replied to the astrologers, This is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me my dream and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turn into piles of rubble. Okay. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you'll receive from me gifts, rewards, and great honors. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Verse 7. Once more they replied, let the king tell his servants the dream. We will interpret it. The king answered again, I am certain you are attempting to buy time because you realize this is what I have decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there is only one penalty for you. Tell me the dream so I know you can interpret it for me. The astrologers answered the king, there is not a man on earth who can do what the king has asked. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of a magician, enchanter, or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among the men. This made the king so angry and furious, he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. The decree was issued to put all wise men to death, and men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to also put them to death. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise man, Daniel spoke with him with wisdom and tact. That'll be important in a moment. He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel, and at once, Daniel went to the king, asked for more time so he might interpret the dream. Then in the next couple of verses, we see Daniel rush home. And Daniel telling his friends, start praying, praying fervently. But Daniel wasn't worried. He was pretty cool, calm, and collected. So much so, he was able to sleep that night. And while he was sleeping, God would give him not only the dream, but the interpretation of the dream. Okay, we pick up in verse 24. Daniel then went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute all the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, do not execute the wise men. Take me to the king. I will interpret his dream for him. Arioch then took Daniel to the king at once and said, I have found a man who can tell the king what his dream means. The king asked Daniel, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, no wise man, enchanter, or magician can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind are true. Now, we're not going to spend a ton of time on the dream itself, but here's what I'll say in summary. It was both simple and strange. King Nebuchadnezzar would dream of this enormous statue that was formed out of four different metals, beginning with a, a head of gold, a chest of silver, bronze made out of iron, and then a, a bronze a, a midsection, and then down to um, legs and feet of iron. 
And then this stone strikes the statue and it, it shatters into tons of pieces. And Daniel would tell Nebuchadnezzar, this represents what's to come. You are the head, the gold. And then after you fall, there will be another kingdom and another and another. So the dream was a preview of kingdoms to come. Upon hearing this, he says, he, Nebuchadnezzar says this. I am falling prostrate, prostrate before you, Daniel. He then paid honor and ordered him an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery to me. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished him with gifts. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all his wise men, including his friends. Daniel himself remained in the royal court. So as chapter 2 begins, Nebuchadnezzar is there kicking off his second year of reign, and he has at his disposal anyone and everything he wants. But we find the king in a unique position. He is worried, he's a bit insecure, and he's facing resistance as he attempts to expand his kingdom. And one night he heads to bed and he falls to sleep and he has a dream, a disturbing dream, a sleep interrupting dream. Now, dreams of significance were found all throughout Scripture. In fact, we see 21 dreams recorded throughout the Bible. Ten are found in Genesis. Six dreamers are kings. One is a woman, and two are named Joseph. When God would communicate in a dream, it would be for one of two purposes. Number one would be for a direct, explicit instruction. And the second would be more symbolic, like in the case of Nebuchadnezzar. And wanting to know the meaning behind the dreams, Nebuchadnezzar gathers this group of wise counsel, or a dream team, if you will. And they were experts in foretelling the future. And they come before the king, and man, they are so confident in their ability to please the king. But Nebuchadnezzar makes this impossible demand. He's skeptical of their ability, of their authenticity. And so he makes this challenge. Not only tell me the interpretation, first, tell me what the dream was. Now, now we know this is both irrational and impossible. We know no human on earth has this ability. Maybe you can relate. Maybe this is played out for you in real life. You're, you're at home, you're on the couch, you're watching TV, you're minding your own business, and then your spouse walks in, arms crossed, and they say, I'm upset. And you, you know, interrupted from your peace and quiet on the couch, you turn and, what's wrong? What, what's happened? How can I help you? And they respond, no, no, no. You tell me why I'm upset and then how you're going to fix it. Is this just my life? I don't know. Okay. This is an impossible situation. And this is the situation the dream interpreters now find themselves in. Now, someone else could ask, what's the big deal? It's just a dream. Well, then dreams carried a lot of weight. Nebuchadnezzar knew his dream contained some important critical information but he could not interpret it. 
So the magicians, the astrologers, they're going back and forth with Nebuchadnezzar. Here's what we need. Well, here's what you're getting. Here's what we need. And that's not what you're getting. Back and forth and back and forth. They must be shaking their heads going, we can't do what you're asking us to do. And agitated and irritated, it all comes to a head when Nebuchadnezzar says, is that your final answer? And they say, yeah. And he says, fine, you're dead. And he issues this decree for all wise men to be killed. Enter Daniel. Now, it's worth noting Daniel's posture versus Nebuchadnezzar's. Nebuchadnezzar is demanding and impulsive. Daniel isn't. He has tact, as we heard about. Despite the news that he could very likely be losing his life, he's cool, calm, collected. Nebuchadnezzar demands an immediate answer. Daniel knows he must wait on the Lord. Upon hearing this this news of ordered death for him, his friends, and all wise counsel, Daniel doesn't fall apart. He doesn't run and hide. He doesn't withdraw. He doesn't get angry. He doesn't get on the defense. With calm and confidence, he asks a question. Hey, can I see the king? And as Daniel is brought into Nebuchadnezzar's presence, he's not frantic. Instead, he's tactful. And he tactfully gets right to the point. Can I get a little bit of time, king? I think I can do this. And then we know he returns with the interpretation. And Nebuchadnezzar, his reaction, well, it's two-part. Relief and recognition. Relief because he knows, okay, I, I, I get how all this is going to lay out, and it's post my kingdom, okay, whoo. And a recognition, recognition of Daniel's God is the, quote, God of gods and the Lord of kings. Now, Daniel 2, if you knew the story or if you heard it for the first time today, it centers around a dream. That's a big bulk of the, the passage. But it's really essential that whether it's Daniel 2 or any reading of the Bible, that we see the point of the passage. As lifelong learners and readers of the Bible, we need to make sure that we know the point of the passage. Yes, this dream and its interpretation will have major implications to come. Yes, this dream is critical to the progression of Daniel's story. And yes, of course, this dream shows God's unparalleled situational power. But this dream or the interpretation of this dream is not the point of our passage. And honestly, it's easy to miss the point. Jesus got this. Jesus experienced this. Remember, he's been followed around by these Jewish leaders one day, they're these biblical scholars, and they're attempting to trap and to trick him and throw him off and catch him in his own words. And there's this one moment where he says to them in John 5, you, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in the, them, the scriptures, you'll have eternal life. But these are the very scriptures that testify about me, Jesus. In other words, he's telling them, you're missing the point. It's hidden in plain sight. In all of your theological study and your Old Testament literacy, you are missing it. These guys have studied about the coming Messiah, and yet he stands before them, and they don't recognize it's him. 
So this is why, as we continue to learn and grow and, under, and, and deepen our understanding of God and who Christ is, it's essential that we find and discover and more really understand the point of the passage. Because if we miss it, we can miss what's hiding in plain sight. And it's critical because if you miss the point, you miss the purpose. Now, this is not to say that in the, in the completeness of chapter 2, there are not a ton of important lessons or solid reminders for us. For example, somewhere in your church life, some pastor on some Sunday morning likely told you, be bold like Daniel. And you're like, that's good. And so you wrote it down and you circled it and put stars around it like a friend of mine would do. I heard a pastor say one time, be like Daniel in the TSA. See something, say something. Okay, that's, that's probably true too. Yo, be bold like Daniel. I get that. And. Be bold like Daniel, and we're called to be bold, yes. But in chapter 2, Daniel examples to us we're also called to stand firm. We are called to stand firm. To be bold and to stand firm are similar. They both require a, a certain conviction and courage. Abraham Lincoln, for example, would say this. Be sure you put your feet in the right place, then stand firm. Abraham Lincoln would say that, and make sure you notice the progression. He says, put your feet in the right place and then stand firm. In order to stand firm, location matters. As a kid growing up, if we would go on a road trip, we didn't have Spotify. We had cassette tapes, hello. And on our road trips, we would pop in some Salty the Singing Songbook. Do I have any Salty fans here? Cool. Okay. This is about to go really well. Okay. So Salty the Singing Songbook, he's the star of the Kids Praise 1, 2, 3, 4, all. I've got the collection. And, and as we're driving wherever it was, I remember this one particular song, this one particular lesson, as Salty talked about, or actually sang about, the importance of location. He would say, don't build your house on the sandy land. Don't build it too near the shore, because it might look kind of nice, but you'll have to build it twice, and you'll have to build your house once more. That was a solo. Okay. Look it up. It's a great song. Salty was speaking to location. He's saying to be bold and confident, it's important where we place ourselves. And then to choose to stand firm. Paul would write this in 1 Corinthians. He'd say it this way. Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be strong and courageous. He's basically laying it out in four parts. Number one is to be on guard. In other words, be watchful. Be aware. He's saying be strong. He's saying, be confident, uh, be assured. He's saying, be courageous. There it is, be bold. And last, he says, stand firm in the faith. You know, in one, in one sense, being bold is easier than standing firm. Boldness requires just a moment. Bob Goff would say, boldness takes 20 seconds of insane courage. But standing firm, man, that requires a commitment and a commitment of time. 
You know, here on the West Coast and in Washington State, uh, you know, we watch the East Coast, the Gulf Coast just get pummeled with tropical storms and hurricanes every single year. And as we watch the weather unfold on, on TV and the Weather Channel, we see the weather person reporting in, in the eye of the storm and in the background all the time, palm trees just swaying like crazy as cars are flipping over. Palm trees remain intact. It's because they, are aer- uh, they have an aerodynamic design. You see, there's no branches. All the leaves are on top. But really, the palm tree has its roots to, th- to thank. Instead of a, a few roots, the palm tree has a multitude of smaller roots that spread out on the upper layers of the soil or the sand, which helps it hold on to more of a base and allows it to be heavier so it doesn't topple over. This keeps the palm tree able to stand firm despite the worst possible conditions. Diedrich Bonhoeffer would say it this way. He asked the question, who stands firm? Only the one for whom the final standard is not his reason, his principles, his conscience, his freedom, his virtue, but who is ready to sacrifice all of these when in faith and soul allegiance to God, he's called to obedient and responsible action. Church, get this. When we pick our spot and we shoot our shot and we stand firm in our faith with a certain courage, we can withstand any storm that heads our way. Those aren't just words, that's truth. That's not a theory, that is fact. Like Daniel, we have got to have that moral courage to stand firm in obeying God's will and command, even if we have to stand alone. And while standing firm is a highly applicable, great takeaway from this story, it is not the point of the passage. There's another thought from Daniel 2, and and that's that it's critical of who gets the credit. It is critical of who gets the credit. My wife would tell you I'm a bit of a creature of habit. And recently we were out on a dinner date, and if I go out to dinner to a restaurant, I know I'm often going to pick the exact same thing. Or if it were at a new restaurant, it's likely I'm going to to meander towards something I I like or know. Well, this particular night on this particular, on this night at this restaurant, I don't know, I must have been just feeling super alive because I was like, I'm going to get something new. And I remember talking to the waiter. I said, what would you recommend? And he gives me excitedly two different options. I pick one. And as he returns to the table with our entrees, he places it in front of me. He says, now, if you love this, you can thank me. If you hate it, you can blame the chef. (laughs) See, who gets credit is really important to us. Even when we're like, oh, now it doesn't matter. It, It doesn't matter. It matters to us deep down. But consider Daniel. Like, if you think about the story and this moment, consider Daniel. Like, in the middle of the night, he, he gets uh, the dream and the dream interpretation, the wisdom from God. But Daniel doesn't do what I likely would have done. 
Like, I would have bounded out of bed, hopped in my car, in my pajamas, driven to the kingdom, rang the doorbell and said, King, I got your answer. It's not what Daniel does. Instead, what he does is he pauses and he worships. He pauses to worship. Pastor Andrew Leitner would observe this. He, Daniel, gives thanks to the God who gives, gives the gift of wisdom to his servants. Daniel pauses, and the narrative slows down to an almost screeching halt. Daniel reflects and invites us, the reader, to reflect and to praise and to worship on the character and work of God. Daniel moves from pleading pre-bed to praise. First he does this privately, and then he moves into praising publicly. Check it out in verse 19. It says this, During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Daniel praised the God of heaven. So God shows up, and Daniel's immediate first reaction is praise. He says this, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He gives wisdom to the wise, knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what I asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. What an impactful, prayerful praise. And more than just praise and thanksgiving, Daniel gives God credit. He says things like, you have given, you have made known. Made known what? Wisdom to the wise, knowledge to the discerning. But that's privately. What about publicly? The real test is yet to come as he stands before Nebuchadnezzar. And it's important to understand the weight of this particular moment for Daniel. Because in the wake of Nebuchadnezzar's magicians indicating that no man on earth could do as he was asking, Daniel was about to. So what does it say? As your majesty was lying there, Daniel speaking, your mind turned to things to come, the future. And the revealer of mysteries showed you what was going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because I have greater wisdom than anyone else alive, but so that your majesty may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. Understand, this could have been a defining moment for Daniel, a chance to impress the king, a chance to earn a spot in his leadership. But what does Daniel do? Man, he gives all the credit to God. He gives all the credit where credit is due. It was God who gave wisdom. It was God who revealed that which was hidden. It's God who answered prayer. It's because of and through and for God that the king's dream was revealed to Daniel. And what was the result? Well, it was a defining moment for Daniel. The king was impressed. And Daniel did earn a spot in his leadership. St. Anthony of Padua would say it this way, attribute to God every good. 
Attribute to God every good that you have received. If you take credit for something that does not belong to you, you are guilty of theft. Whoa, whoa there. Easy, Tony. Now, he's blunt, but he's not wrong. We are limited. God is limitless. We are smart. He's all-knowing. We can do some things. God can do all. All things. We can't forget who we are and who God is. We are finite. God is infinite. Paul would remind this to the Corinthians, and it's our reminder as well. 2 Corinthians 10 17, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Let the one who boasts boast. I, the reason I love this verse is because what he's really saying is if you're going to brag, brag about Jesus. If you're going to brag out there, brag about Jesus. We can't get tired of giving credit to God. Now, ensuring that God gets the credit is also a really critical takeaway from this story. But it is also not the point of the passage. Standing firm, important. Being bold, important. Yeah, taking, making sure God gets the credit, important. Not the point of the passage. What is it? As my grandpa would say, if he were alive, he'd say, if it were a rattlesnake, it would have bit us. More than being bold, more than standing firm, more than giving proper credit, more than a dream interpreted, more than an important moment for Daniel, these verses tell a grand narrative. God is greater than all circumstances. God is greater than all circumstances. God is the star of this story. No, scratch that. God is the story. And when we fly over this story, we can't miss the forest for the trees. The point of the passage is God is in control of all things, in all circumstances, at all times. If life were a symphony, God would be the conductor. If, if, if life were a painting, God would be the artist. If life were a skyscraper, God would be the architect. In, in Psalm 113, it says this. The Lord is exalted over all the nations. His glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God? The one who sits enthroned on high. Just for spice, the same verse in the interpretation of the message reads like this. God is higher than anything or anyone, outshining everything you could see in the skies. Who can compare with God, our God, so majestically enthroned? Did you catch that? Where is God? He's over, he's above, he's on high. Therefore, our mandates... Our ultimatums, they are no match for God. They're laughable. In fact, I kind of wonder what God does when we try and limit him or put him in a box or try and make a deal. God, if you will, or God, I will if, or God, if you don't. Now, the fact that God is greater than all our circumstances is really great news when we are in great seasons of life. God being in control is good because life is good. It's comforting to know that God is in control of your pregnancy, of your 
the new house you're buying, of your job promotion, or your new job, or this time of year, your post-graduation plans. Yes, God is in control. I'm good with that. I'm experiencing it. I'm living it out. It's easy to trust God being in control in those moments. But what about, what about when life isn't that way? What about when life is dark? When outcomes seem bleak, when the future isn't clear, when the marriage is in trouble, when the savings account is dwindling, when the job is lost, when someone passes away, when the cancer returns. In those moments, in those valleys, we must choose God. We can only choose God and we have to live in the reality, the belief of the truth that he's in control. Now, I do not know what you're bringing to church this weekend, but if you sit here or you're attending online and you find yourself facing a hopeless situation, if it feels like the cards are stacked against you, that rope that you're holding on to, that maybe was a tight hold and then it was a grip and now you're just barely hanging on, know this. God is holding the end of your rope. God's holding the end of your rope. And he's saying, don't give in to despair. Don't give up. Don't quit. Don't throw in the towel. And whatever you do, don't let go. And perhaps like Daniel or like Job or Joseph or Jesus, your pain will become your purpose. We have this great encouragement in Ephesians 3 that he, God, is able to do exceedingly abundantly more than we could ever ask or think. He's got us covered. It doesn't mean it's easy or painless, but he's got us covered. He can give peace in the place of turmoil joy in the place of sorrow, clarity in the place of confusion, victory in defeat, light in darkness, strength in our weakness. Church, hope is not lost. God's on the throne. God's in control. God is still and always greater than any of our circumstances. We can be assured and take to the bank, history is not controlled by humans. History has been and always will be directed by God. And I would offer you, as we looked at the total uh, chapter of chapter 2, it's a story that is completely orchestrated by God. That's the point. Every moment of chapter 2 is interconnected. It's God who would give a dream to Nebuchadnezzar who wouldn't know the dream and have to give it to the magicians. And they would say, we don't know. No man can know. And he'd say, well, you've got to tell me. And they'd say, we don't know. Well, then everyone's going to die. Enter Daniel who says, I think I can work on this. Who would go home and sleep and pray about it. God would give him the dream and the interpretation so he could come back to Nebuchadnezzar and say, I've got your dream and your interpretation. And Nebuchadnezzar says, whoa, your God is the God. It's all connected. It's all interconnected. God would use a pagan ruler to reveal his plan. Every moment, every interaction, every situation, God is in it with 
us. We don't get to know what's happening right around the corner or in the next hour, the next week, or the next year. But we do believe that God's in control of it all. Corey Ten Boom would say this, never be afraid to trust an unknown future to our known God. I love that. Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to our known God. Jesus would say this as well. He'd say, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. For God, everything's on the table. Nebuchadnezzar would have a most audacious request. The magicians, at least in this one instance, were were right. No man on earth could do what he was asking. In hopeless situations, God shines the brightest. And I, I think of one of the most epic rhetorical questions in Scripture. It's found in Jeremiah 32, and it says this, I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. Is anything too hard for me? Like, I I wish I could hear his inflection. Is anything too hard? Is any, really, is anything too hard for me? We know the answer. We know how the story ends. God wins. God always wins. So if the point of Daniel 2 really is simply an affirmation of God's providence, then what's the challenge? The challenge is simply to tell others of that fact. In other words, God's stories are stories worth telling. God's stories are worth you telling all the time. God is not a fragile God. God is not an insecure God. God doesn't need you and me building him up. He is who he is, period. But God loves you you and you and you. He loves you and he loves you telling stories where he uses you to further his kingdom and to tell people about his son. Jesus, sorry, uh, Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar a God story. We're called to do the same and be assured you will never fall short of having God stories in your back pocket. Because every time God shows up, speaks up, answers, reveals, heals, directs, you've got a God story. You've got a God story that you can share with that neighbor, that coworker, that friend, that family member, someone on the sideline at your kid's soccer game. And sometimes you're going to get a Nebuchadnezzar-like reaction, and sometimes you're going to get a blank stare, and sometimes you're going to get disbelief and maybe even opposition, but you know what? Release it. Their reaction is not your responsibility. Simply tell the story. Tell the God story. Wow them. Wow them with the truth that in good and in bad, in hard times and in easy times, in great times and in the valley of the shadow of death, that your God is a God who's in control and he's working in you and he's working through you. He's working all around you. Wow people with God, let God shine in your story. Get this, in all circumstances, with Jesus as the center of our faith, do this. Share your God stories boldly 
and often. Stand firm in the truth of who God is and who he says you are. And give God the credit for all he is doing in your life. And whatever you do, as my friend Kip would say, if you get anything out of this, get this. God loves you. He's for you. He's with you. And he's in control today, tomorrow, forever.